from Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C. This is the HPS Insights Podcast. Elliot, we just wrapped up a great conversation with your friend, Amit, uh, of Inclusive. And I got to say, I, I learned a lot and found it really interesting, the work they're doing both as a as a sort of hybrid, as he described it, of, of regulatory tech and then fintech. I think our listeners are going to love this one. What'd you think? How do you do? Well, <laughs> I think Amit is a is a master of the nuances in a lot of these intersections, right, Brian? Where we're kind of exploring, like, where does crypto come across mainstream financial services? Come across KYC? You know, uh, know your customer laws. You know, where do those things all intersect? Amit at the team of Inclusive are literally in the pipes, making sure everything goes where it's supposed to go to the yeah. people for whom it is intended, right? And and Ahmed is is building these tools that that explicitly address some of the things that can go wrong across all of those uh, sometimes, frankly, conflicting processes, all with the ultimate goal of bringing more people into the financial system and including more people in economic growth. I think he he I love the point he makes about. Financial inclusion is a national security tool, right? For a long time, we've had rules based on national security, you know, perspectives that have essentially taken people out of the financial system for better or for worse. And what we have now with crypto, with some of these risk and compliance tools is the opportunity to bring those people back in. And I think that's a really, really powerful, uh, you know, a powerful opportunity. And, And it was great to get Amit's perspective not just on that, but on some of the plumbing and some of the future of crypto. I, I just, I, he's an expert. I thought it was a great conversation. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and one of the things I'm really happy with is when you and I had this idea a couple of weeks ago, we did not want to do a What is Crypto podcast series. We really right. wanted to just bring in different folks who are approaching this from all different angles and get a, a little deeper in the work they're doing. And um, this is a great episode to start this series with because the work he's doing is is really fascinating and you see how it fits in what is a, a really growing space in the crypto world. So I hope our listeners enjoy this one as much as I did. Here's our, our first episode in this series with Amit Sharma, CEO of Finclusive. Welcome to another episode of HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, analyzing current events impacting the business and political communities. I'm your host today, Brian DeAngelis, a partner at HPS, and am excited to kick off with one of my colleagues, a new series of episodes focused around cryptocurrency. We're going to be doing several crypto conversations with folks uh, from the industry, folks who are working in and around Capitol Hill on some of the regulatory structure, folks who have been in this business um, and the broader fintech space for a long time. And we'll try to get a good sense of where things are heading in 2022 around this this growing financial ecosystem. I am going to be teamed up throughout most of this with my partner in crime, Elliot Owensby, who is a senior director here at HPS. Elliot, we've got uh, a great guest for today's show and uh, we'll likely kick off our series. You've been working with Ahmed for a while. So why don't I turn it over to you to, to kick us off and introduce our guest? 
Yes, I, I would say to borrow a phrase from our friends at Odd Lots, we have the perfect guest today to get into a little bit of the intersection of fintech and rig tech and crypto and I guess what we have to call fiat now. Uh, but that is Amit Sharma, who is the CEO and founder of Finclusive. Finclusive is a fintech rig tech firm right at the cutting edge of compliance overall um, and compliance as a service that ranges from you know, global businesses um, and in particular, the, a focus on the un- and underbanked communities across the world. Amit, we're fortunate to have you and your expertise, not just in you know, whatever you want to call digital finance and crypto, but your experience as a senior advisor at the Treasury Department um, in the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, your experience at Mitsubishi UFJ as chief of staff and uh, a leader in the Global Markets Division. So suffice to say, Brian, we've talked about how awesome it is to talk to folks that do something different than what we do, that have that practitioner lens. And Amit, we're Always glad to time. have you. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you both for that great intro. And, and it's really a pleasure to be here. And it's really been a pleasure working with your esteemed group on all things inclusive in our early growth. So much appreciated. You bet. Of course. Great. So maybe the place to start, Amit, is just, you know, so to me, uh, I have a little bit of insight into Finclusive and the, the growth of the business, um, the, you know, your vision as you set out to, you know, now at this point, you know, almost maybe five years ago set out to develop a, an innovative new product on the kind of compliance front that has a lot of intersections at several points in the, in the financial services system um, and several really, I think, tremendous kind of uh, value adds for, for several of those stakeholders. So maybe the place to start and then we can, we can jump in uh, to kind of crypto world and all that. Why don't, you know, we'd love to hear a little bit about Finclusive and kind of your, your vision and your roadmap as you kind of continue this, uh, this really impressive growth. Well, thanks very much for that. Um, well, I'll start by just saying, as, as you pointed out in the intro, Finclusive is a bit of a hybrid uh, financial technology and a regulatory technology company. And as you can see from our name, Finclusive, where our true north is financial inclusion. When most people think of financial inclusion, they think about how do I get a product or service from the banking space into an otherwise underserved population? And normally it's low moderate income or, or poor countries, you know, thinking about very innovatively, how do I extend credit, you know, small business lending to individual credit? How do I give access to, to bank accounts so I can store the value in, a, in, in a sure, an insured account for, for someone that's unbanked uh, or underbanked as they, as they were? How do I get money cross-border because so much of the international payment system that folks rely on for just plain vanilla remittances from rich countries to poor countries and the like? These are all really noteworthy development objectives that financial inclusion hits. We take a bit of a unique approach, and that unique approach is really informed by, as, as you pointed out, you know, my background being a, you know, on the government side, at the U.S. Treasury Department, being in the banking side, international payment side, the technology side. And really, it's, it's, it's mindful of incredible growth and innovation that's happening in financial services. So there's two or three quick trends that really inform what the core value proposition of Finclusive is. One is, as you can imagine, many, many products and services are being innovated outside of mainstream traditional banks, right? So the whole idea of, of DeFi or decentralized finance, mobile banking, peer-to-peer, you know, these decentralized systems, um, you know, providing connectivity directly with no financial intermediary, right? You don't have to go to a bank to send money to someone else's bank that they can get money from. You can now send value literally from your mobile device directly to another mobile's device 
across the planet. You can do so digitally. You can now do so in all sorts of different types of value, like cryptocurrency and other forms of digital value. So that's hugely exciting because it is providing connectivity the world over in ways that traditional banking has not in the past. So that's exciting from a financial inclusion perspective. But what's concerning to many, both in the sector, in, in the private sector, as well as for governments and policymakers and regulators, is that same system, that same innovation that you and I think is awesome, is also exploitable by bad people. And so how do, how do these new systems that really operationally look nothing like traditional banking, how do they incorporate the essential financial crimes compliance controls of know your customer and do I know who I'm dealing with and is the beneficiary on the other side actually the person I'm trying to send the money to? Do they have sufficient funds in their account to be able to debit it and then send that money, et cetera, et cetera. All those anti-money laundering, know your customer elements are equally important. And that's where we come in is we are a hybrid in the sense that we provide financial crimes compliance controls to that emerging and growing segment of the market that's providing tremendous inclusive opportunities, new products and services in this non-bank, more digitally friendly peer-to-peer environment. But we recognize that compliance is hard, it's costly, it's uh, often redundant, and the average institution, bank or non-bank alike, is spending upwards of a third of its operating budget on governance, risk, and compliance. So it's you know, this expensive endeavor, but it's needed. And so the compliance marketplace is ripe for disruption too. And so from a reg tech perspective, what Finclusive does is it identifies a number of capabilities in that sort of full stack from onboarding and knowing a customer at the outset to validating them on, you know, on an ongoing manner to tracking transactions and making sure they're not going to bad people, making sure global watch lists are screened, making sure that we're running analytics on that, uh, on those transactions and those clients, all of those capabilities, we bring in one service workflow and we create it so it's equally applicable to the most traditional small community bank or credit union or the most sophisticated global fintech company or crypto exchange. And so you have to create a, a user interface that is, is applicable to both those environments. And then the second thing we do is we connect these emerging, amazing, innovative financial services uh, coming from DeFi and crypto and the like, and we connect them to mainstream banking so that a fintech company providing small business lending to entrepreneurs in Africa can actually hold that value in an insured account in the United States and can access that value anywhere in the world. And so that connectivity between the, the new, new technologies, new fintech applications, new decentralized financial services to the old, which is you know plain vanilla deposit taking and, and insured deposits and access to the ACH rails and the wire rails, all these things that you and I take for granted that's the intersection. And that's, that's the space that Finclusive occupies. That's, those are the products that we service. You, you just touched on something that I think really nails the whole, I don't know, the, exactly what's happening in crypto right now, right? Which is there's a lot of exciting stuff. There, there's a lot of new birth, a lot of new development. Things are taking off, but folks are slamming into those challenges that... Government or, you know, the big actors have been dealing with for years and are well prepared for. I, I don't know if either one of you caught it. There was a big spread in the uh, Wall Street Journal this weekend about NFTs and OpenSea and the amazing growth they've had. But now they're dealing with copyright issues, patent problems. Is the person on the other end of that actually real? Are they just ripping off someone and how do they deal with all this? It sounds like you guys are at the same time, a little bit on the cutting edge of like, let us fill 
this painful kind of gap period where you've gotten hot enough where you're taking off, but now you're running into some real roadblocks. Let us get in there and help you before those roadblocks become a big problem for your business. Do I, do I have that right? Absolutely. But I'd go one step further. And that is, you know, innovation always breeds this fervor, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, new, new technology applications. I mean, look, look no further than just the advent of the internet. When the internet came about, yeah. You know, so many content producers were putting information there and they're saying, now I can share all of this information and the information superhighway. But what were the controls on that, right? How did we monitor that content? How do we provide access to that content? Was censorship adequate? Was it necessary? How do you do so in a, in a quote, less governance you know, space? The financial services industry is a highly governed, highly le- regulated industry for good intention, yeah. right? People's personal information, <laughs> including their economic data, is, is out there. And you need and to And their personal them. wealth, right? This comes Correct. right down. Right? Just <laughs> you know, their the money you need wealth. for bills. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's from anywhere from my, my paycheck. I live paycheck to paycheck and how important it is for me to access my own funds all the way to just general wealth creation. And all of this has to be, you know, uh, regulated uh, un, un, uh, understandably because it's personal data. It's personal financial information. Now, when you go to a uh, an environment where there are fewer and fewer to no intermediary, intermediaries, right? No person in the middle between Brian and Elliot or Elliot and Amit transacting. Who is that regulator? Who's making sure that I am legitimate, right. that you're legitimate? That we're not trying to fleece each other, right? That your identity um, is um, is uh, affirmed by some uh, authority. That that the value that I transfer goes to you for the intended purpose. So these are all very noteworthy regulatory requirements. But we are moving those regulations into an environment where the literally the operations and the technology stacks of these new applications don't look at all like they do in traditional finance, right? So if I can download an app and put value in that app from some place, who is the regulator, right? When a number of the, the, when, when the Taliban took over in Afghanistan, you actually saw a number of people take their mobile uh, phone out and download Binance wallets. Well, that's amazing. If you think about that kind of connectivity, who's the right. regulator, but who's making sure? And, and so these are all the, 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 the noteworthy right uh, questions. But the, the, the other side is also true. The fact that they could do that was, was awesome in a lot of ways, right? That kind of connectivity. So, so we sit at an intersection where right now we have to be facilitative of innovation in the best manner possible but we have to also equally ask, should I, as many times as we ask, can I? And when we ask, should I, it's not to stifle innovation. It's to effectively say innovation must continue to be thriving. But how do we also put in self-incentivizing governance controls to make sure that you and I are ab- acting in transparent manners and safe manners, not exploiting others uh, and the like? And that that's what's exciting. So it navigating the space is exciting, but it's challenging because there's a lot of noise when people don't really understand some of the innovations that are happening, some of the products and services, and they get swept up in the herd mentality. Oh, I need to get involved in NFTs. I need to get involved in these alternative coins. And I need to get involved in in digital currencies. But what does that mean? Because that universe is pretty pretty large. And distilling that and, and wrapping some controls around it um, are, are part and parcel of what we do. I, I was just going to say, I mean, I mean, you had a series of great conversations with the team at the Wall Street Journal last fall 
um, and with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think that's a great uh, sort of microcosm of where a lot of these kind of factors have come together. Um, and it relates in a lot of ways to, I know what is one of your sort of, you know, abiding interests and which is the intersection between sort of uh, anti-money laundering, anti-terrorist finance uh, with financial inclusion and the tension that may be inherent there, right? I always think back to, you know, some of the work you've done with, with platforms like LaunchGood, where, you know, there is an inherent de-risking in the financial system, not necessarily, I would personally argue, I mean, you may feel differently, uh, not necessarily, you know, a malicious de-risking, but in order to meet current, uh, you know, banking regulation, there have been times where certain types of organizations, certain types of people based on their transaction uh, transactions and, and, uh, and the pattern over time aren't able to use mainstream financial services in the U.S. specifically like we might think about it. And I think I'm going to I'm going to speculate a little bit that part of the growth, as you say, in cryptocurrencies and in digital wallets, in some of the even some of the you know sovereign identification tools is rooted in part in those restrictions that folks currently face, rightly or wrongly, in, in the context of the U.S. financial system. So I wonder if uh, whether it's launch good, whether it's Afghanistan, you know, I wonder if you might go through kind of a, a little bit of a case study in how those uh, factors kind of correlate. And then, you know, obviously if inclusive, that's right where you all sit. You sit right in the middle of that whole uh, kind of web. And I think it's, it's, it's a perfect example of, of where you all add an incredible amount of value. Absolutely. And, and, and you hit the nail on the head. It's been a journey and that journey has informed not only our uh, business and the value proposition, the, the products and services we bring to market, but that journey um, is constantly evolving. So taking a co- quick step back contextually, you're absolutely right. You know, in a, you know, in a post-September 2001 world, you know, after the tragic events um, you know, of September 2001, there was a concerted effort by both the U.S. government and our international counterparts to say, you know what, the international financial system is exploited by bad people. How do we put tools and requirements in, in the financial sector, sector, meaning banks, non-banks, those, those organizations you and I all go to to hold a deposit, get a loan, send money, et cetera? How do we put rules and controls there to say, they will be the sharpest point of the spear, right? They will say, mm-hmm. they will understand who their customer is. They'll make sure that they understand who that customer is. They'll monitor those transactions and like. Again, the intentions were all solid. However, the pendulum always swings sometimes too, some, it always swings too far. And sometimes that has some negative uh, repercussions and, and, and unintended consequences, right? As a result of many of those controls, certain segments of the economy, certain types of transactions, certain customer types, certain jurisdictions were simply labeled as high compliance risk. Money service businesses, nonprofits, um, international remittance flows, uh, low modern income countries, right? Uh, even emerging, emerging technology and, and non-bank financial services. The, these were considered higher risk for quote unquote potential exploitation by money launderers and terrorist financiers and, and other bad people. Mm-hmm. So when you put this guidance out there, Maybe even with the right intent to say, hey, XYZ banks, 
make sure that you're doing the right scrutiny of those customers. The banks are going concerns of profit-making institutions, and they're now being given a law enforcement uh, set of objectives, right? You know, these, these uh, activities that they never really were trained to do, but they're now uh, forced to do that, pay for doing so. And they're saying, well, wait a second. On the one hand, you're telling me certain segments of my customer base may pose a higher risk, and I therefore have to do more to understand and mitigate that risk. And at the end of the day, any economic agent, any organization that has a, has a profit and loss line is saying, well, if it's going to cost me more to actually do that diligence and monitor that customer, then I'm going to get in potential revenue. They've got a business decision. And too often, and unfortunately, that business decision has said, well, if nonprofits and crowdfunding platforms are inherently higher risk, and the government has told me that, and I have to then put in more controls to govern that risk, what value does it pose to me? And unfortunately, more babies have been thrown out with the bathwater. In other words, more traditional financial institutions have said, you know what? I'm just going to not do business with fill in the blank. And the fill in the blank has been low moderate income individuals, poor countries, international remittances, uh, um, money service businesses, uh, et cetera, et cetera, nonprofits and NGOs, and therefore organizations like LaunchGood, a wonderful organization, a crowdfunding platform, Muslim affiliated that enables NGO campaigns all over the world to raise money for amazing causes. And many of them are very plain vanilla, low risk causes, but some of them are higher risk, right? Refugee assistance and, you know, for Syrian refugees crossing the border in Turkey or, or now the Afghan crisis, right? Absolutely vital humanitarian assistance that literally constitute higher risk. And certain payment facilitators and banks say, oh boy, if you want me to send money to and from counterparts in these markets, you're going to ask me to do all this due diligence. It's going to cost me a certain amount. It's going to net me a certain amount of value. Do I do this business or do I risk getting sanctioned or fined by my regulators? And too often, they just say, I'm not going to do the business. And LaunchGood had a real struggle because many just wouldn't take the business. We said, we can help you. And so we implemented a very robust compliance engine, our compliance as a service, as you pointed out. So we can do that last mile vetting because we've got a global network that can look at those those uh, frontier and emerging markets and really evaluate the NGOs on the ground, the beneficiaries on the ground. And they use our accounts and payments functionality to be able to move that money. And, and they can do so with full transparency. So, they, so they're doing the right things. And you, and you end up realizing that much of financial services is not managing to actual risk. They're managing to perceived risk. And that's the core value proposition we bring to bear is that let's really understand the actual risk and not manage to a, a perception of that risk. And so as we move forward from my days at Treasury, you know, part of this, I joke about this, Finclusive is a bit my penance. We, we created... <laughs> Uh, an environment where a lot of organizations were, quote, de-risked. They were just wholesale debanked. They were just pushed out of the banking system. And they were very legitimate organizations serving very legitimate causes uh, and clients. We need to bring them back into that service. And one of the things that I lament in my time at, in government all the way to now is that we, we tend to overinvest in the sort of punitive national security enablements. And we tend to underinvest in the positive enabling environments that really provide greater financial inclusion. And I would argue that the more organizations and individuals that are provided access transparently and securely, then the greater economic resilience we are able to provide and the, the better it is for a broader national security uh, objective. So financial inclusion should not be a, a, a sort of binary um, you know, choice uh, when you're doing national security. It should be part and parcel to the national security and anti-money laundering frameworks. We should be driving inclusion at scale because it is inherently good 
for for our economies and our economic resilience, and it actually helps us manage the anti money laundering risks that that many of these organizations, jurisdictions, and and other would be perceived compliance risk uh, customer segments may may pose to the system. Let me, Ahmed, I'm, I'm not. I don't want to make you uh, answer the meme question on Twitter, right? Like Bitcoin solves this, right? Is is I think I think uh, uh, Jack Dorsey made that reply pretty pretty famous as people complain about different things that they experience in the financial services sector. But but what's what's your view on how crypto? And I'm going to put that in big air quotes and reference the whole ecosystem, right? You guys work with wallet providers. You are affiliated with the Stellar network and and an anchor and a node on that on that uh, protocol. You know, from from kind of tip to tail. What's your view of how uh, crypto in that big in the biggest sense um, is a is going to shape how these processes, whether it's literal products, whether it's regulation, whether it's uh, you know uh, payment rails or beyond. You know, what's your view of how that's going to affect these obstacles that you all are, are out to out to address? It's a, it's a great, great question. And, and part of the answer is in, in embedded in the, in the question and, and at least how you phrased it. First off, crypto, the crypto universe is massive. There are literally thousands and thousands and thousands of different cryptocurrencies. And let's not forget the digital formation and transfer of value has existed for decades. 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 This is something Elliot and I talk about a lot. Yeah. And but what is exciting about the quote crypto universe is really the underlying technology that makes crypto possible. Right. Blockchain and distributed ledger technology is exciting. Why? Because there are attributes of that technology that enable many things that weren't enabled in a in a financial intermediary environment. Mm-hmm. One, you can transact now peer to peer in ways that you couldn't without financial intermediaries, you know, in the mix. The blockchain enables those visuals on a ledger that is, quote, immutable, meaning that it can be audited. That's hugely exciting from a financial crimes compliance perspective, from an anti-money laundering perspective, from a law enforcement perspective, right? These tools allow you to sort of trace transactions while at the same time protecting issues of privacy, right? You can now have individuals transacting on a ledger without full disclosure of their underlying social security number and address and wallet ID and account number and the like. You can do these things under the underlying technology. And then crypto also has, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of so-called stable coins, right? Tokens that are issued that have a backing of some currency or a basket of currency or a, f- a physical asset and the like. There are a number of alternative coins that are not backed necessarily by an underlying asset, but they're traded in the open market. And now there's the advent of central bank digital currencies. So the crypto universe is massive. So, so my first take, you know, is that Understand what you're talking about within crypto and its applications to then understand what the inherent risks are. So we can't make blanket statements like Bitcoin solves all of this. The underlying technology certainly gives us a pathway to do things both you know, differently, securely, and more efficiently than what are otherwise quite inefficient um, and, and um, uh, cumbersome strategies right now. Today, we, we have to attach your underlying information to payments across three or four banks. Well, that's a tremendous uh, disclosure of your privacy information. You can do that now with blockchain without disclosing that information, right? You can you can access your funds. What's exciting about about blockchain technology and those that facilitate crypto transactions is we can now transact near real time, where many financial institutions take two, three, five plus days to settle a transaction. Sometimes that's even 
accessing your own paycheck, right? Depositing right. a paycheck and you can't get access to your own funds in three days. Well, if I live paycheck to paycheck and my utility bill is going to get, get um, you know, needs to be paid, I go without electricity. I need those funds real time. So the, the underlying technology has tremendous inclusive opportunities. Absolutely. Now we have to evaluate are, are, the, um, are the enablements that we're using that technology really solving those problems. Bitcoin is extremely volatile. Do we want low moderate income individuals only transacting in an otherwise volatile instrument, right? Or do we want something that really is stable, um, right? These are the kinds of questions we need to ask and we need to parse the details matter here. We need to parse the differences in different kinds of crypto different kinds of digital assets and what technologies and what payments rails they're transacting. And let's not, let's not forget too, you know, crypto is growing immensely, literally trillions and trillions of dollars uh, are being transacted for payments and, and the like, but the vast majority still are, are being transacted on traditional payment methods, right? Swift transactions, ACH transactions and the like. So we need to bridge the old and the new. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to just jump into the new wholesale and expect everyone to get there. Digital inclusion means we need to handhold literally billions of people and organizations to to make that leap into this new economy and with these new technologies. Ahmed, I'm going to wrap this up with with maybe an unfair question for you on that exact last point. Um, can the U.S. do that? In your opinion, can we can we find that bridge? that avoids either overregulation that that kills a lot of the the great innovations we're seeing overregulation that forces a lot of this maybe overseas which a lot of these major cryptocurrency companies are you know headquartered elsewhere or there have been talk that you know if the US does some things then folks you hear it all the time will have to move overseas can we get to a point here where we as you say hit the right bridge of the right regulations that keep this innovation and this great technology going forward i am optimistic that we can for two or three important reasons um the first is and i mean this i mean this wholeheartedly i'm glass half full and it just a life lived glass half full is a better life I find, right? So instead of, you know, thinking that though there's no way the, the, the U.S. regulators can sort of get there, I believe, and, and having been in the, in the seat before, our team is, is, uh, is um, comprised of uh, former regulators from the Fed, from, from the Treasury, et cetera, um, that people want to do the right thing. So I, I'm, I'm long that, and many of our colleagues that are continually, you know, they continue to work at the Treasury, at the OCC, the, at, at FinCEN, at, at, the, uh, at the Fed, et cetera, there are many that just that want to do the right thing. Uh, the second reason why I'm optimistic is because there as there is as much, if not more, and a growing pull strategy, meaning a non-U.S. pull strategy. The days of the U.S. really having the su- superior dominant, um, you know, regulatory posture are quickly dwindling. Right? Yes, is the U.S. currency still the reserve currency around the world? Is it? Is it the, the currency in which many uh, commodities like oil are priced? Yes, all of that's true. And, and sort of the dominance of the U.S. marketplace in terms of its capital markets, thriving capital markets, raise money, uh, the, the power of the dollar, the stability of the dollar continues. Absolutely. However, these alternatives are challenging that notion. And when you have alternatives, that's the best mother of innovation. And because innovation in the private sector is going at pace, regulatory innovation has to now keep up. So the U.S. regulators are 
more actively seeing what's happening overseas and are being pulled to act in ways that, that others um, are forcing them to. And the third is that we are less and less year on year engaged in, a, in an intermediary environment. In other words, one that we are reliant on someone else to conduct financial transactions on our behalf. We now can transact directly. And the more we can transact directly, certain inefficiencies are starting to reveal themselves in pretty robust ways. Think about the, 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 the PPP program uh, for COVID. Think about sure. the relief program that you know, literally hundreds of millions of dollars had to get in the pockets of, of, of people in need. How much fraud, leakage, and waste was happened because the number of literally hard checks and stored value cards were sent to people that could have been an instantaneous value transfer from the government to their digital wallet. That te- it's not a technology problem. Those technologies exist today. And governments and regulators are feeling that pressure. And I think those three elements together, I believe that U.S. regulators can can find that balance um, because they're forced to engage with with international and see the writing on the wall uh, in that way. And I'm optimistic that way. I think we can find that balance. And and the final thing I would say is that you are seeing U.S. companies go overseas. Um, And if we want to stay competitive, we are going to want to ensure that we've got a healthy innovation environment, capital markets environment, and regulatory environment. Because without that healthy and incentivizing regulatory environment, you then um, can actually push those companies away from the U.S. market. And those pressures, I think, will, will push U.S. regulators in the right direction. Great. Well, that that was helpful. And this this was a fascinating conversation. I, I appreciate you coming on. And, and Elliot, uh, appreciate you introducing us to Amit and the great work you guys are all doing at, at Inclusive. Uh, I hate to do it, but I, I think we have to leave it there and uh, we'll have to put a, a pin in this conversation and have you back on sometime soon on it because this, yeah, this was gonna, great. We're going to call you on some of these predictions on it. Okay, great. Well, uh, well thank, thank you, you to much, all guys. our listeners um, for joining us. Look forward to uh, a couple additional episodes of these cryptocurrency conversations that we'll be having here at HPS over the next few weeks. Um, In the meantime, you can find all of our podcasts on our website at hamiltonplacestrategies.com, or you can follow along on Twitter at HPS Insight. I'm your host, Brian DeAngelis, with my co-host, Elliot Owensby. As always, thank you for listening to HPS Insights. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast, produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights, and follow us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.